Hello and welcome to the second season of the Iris Murdoch podcast. Thank you to everyone who's listened to um, our previous season um, over the summer and for those of you who have promoted the podcast and especially of course to all my guests um, who are on the earlier episodes. This season you can look forward to episodes on Murdoch and Ireland, Murdoch and singing, on her intellectual relationship with Jean-Paul Sartre and, more, and many more including a special edition celebrating the 50th anniversary of the publication of A Fairly Honourable Defeat. But today, by popular request, and indeed for those new to Iris, um, today's episode is going to go back to basics. It's going to be Iris Murdoch for beginners. And we'll be covering her life, her philosophy, her letters and journals, and of course, her novels. And joining me are three experts who between them can cover it all. So I'm delighted to welcome Avril Horner, who's an Emeritus Professor of English at Kingston University in London. Hello, Avril. Hello. Avril's research includes uh, women's writing and um, gothic fiction. Indeed, the um, gothic, gothic uh, fiction is very much what she's um, well known for in the academic community. But um, alongside that, uh, with Anne Rose, she's co-edited two books of essays on Iris Murdoch's work, and she also co-edited Living on Paper, Letters from Iris Murdoch, 1934 to 1995. And she's also recently completed a biography of the author Barbara Cummings, and is currently co-editing a book on comic gothic for Edinburgh University Press. So keeping busy. My second guest um, is uh, Professor Kieran Sitia, who teaches philosophy at MIT. Hi, Kieran. Hi, Miles. Hi, thanks for joining us. He's the author of Midlife, a philosophical guide, and he also hosts a podcast inspired by Iris Murdoch, which I'm sure you've listened to, uh, called Five Questions, in which he asks philosophers five questions about themselves. And um, if you haven't listened to it yet, um, I do thoroughly recommend it. There's so much um, fascinating material on that. And finally, I'm delighted to welcome uh, Dr. Cheryl Bove. Uh, hi, Cheryl. Hi, Miles. Hi. Uh, Cheryl was um, editor of the Iris Murdoch newsletter um, in its earliest incarnation um, from 1995 through to 1998. And it's American editor from 98 through to 2007. And so Cheryl was really there right at the beginning of um, Iris Murdoch studies. Her publications include Understanding Iris Murdoch in 1993, the wonderful um, Iris Murdoch, a descriptive primary and annotated bibliography that she co-authored co with John Fletcher. Um, and um, for those uh, Murdoch academics listening, that's um, such an important one uh, to get if you can get hold of it. And she also co-authored Sacred Space, Beloved City, Iris Murdoch's London with Anne Rowe, and that came out in 2008. And um, before retiring, she taught humanities in the Honours College at Ball State University and directed a writing programme in its College of Architecture and Planning. So as you can see, um, my guests cover the whole range of uh, material connected to Murdoch. And um, I'm sure this episode is going to be a wonderful start to the season. Avril, let's start with you. Could you tell us a little bit about Murdoch's early life and um, I, I suppose about her education mm. and um, the beginnings of her you know, coming into kind of her, her intellectual uh, knowledge and, and work, really. Yes, okay. Um, 
Well, Iris Murdoch was born in 1919 in North Dublin, which was her mother's home, hometown. And um, hence, you know, she has, all throughout her life, she has this interesting relationship with Ireland and how far she is Irish. Um, but she and her mother soon moved to London where her father is working for the Ministry of Health. And they live in various places in London, but end up in East, Eastbourne Road in Chiswick. She describes her family as a perfect trinity of love. She was the only child and saw herself as having a very very um, happy, you know, it wasn't an enormously wealthy childhood, but a very happy and settled childhood. She went to the Froebel School in Hammersmith, where she was very, enjoyed education very much. Then, age 13, she won um, an open scholarship to Babington School in Bristol, uh, a very progressive school where uh, there was rigorous academic discipline and she thrived there. After having been homesick initially, she, she soon settled in. And then age 18, she won an open exhibition to read English at Somerville College in Oxford, but she quite soon switched to classics, to modern grades. As in Oxford, she met many of the people who were going to feature importantly in her life. Philippa Bosenke, who became Philippa Foote, uh, Mary Scruton, who became Mary Midgley, both to become important women philosophers, uh, David Hicks, Frank Thompson, who was killed in the war in Bulgaria, and many others. She had a good friend at Badminton called Anne Leach, and the first letters we have in Living on Paper are to this friend, Anne Leach, and they're written when she's sort of aged 19, 20, 21. And even in these early letters, you can see some of her enthusiasms that actually guide her creative life later. For example, she becomes passionate about art, and in a letter to Anne Leach in 1938, she says, you know, Van Gogh is wonderful. And she tells um, Anne Leach about his life. And she's completely consumed by Van Gogh's art and Gauguin. And she says um, in this letter, I am now consequently consumed with the desire to paint all day and all night and to make in the start with a, this morning with an oil painting of Maria. If only I were about six times as good as I am, I'd chuck up Oxford and go to an art school. I'd sell every faculty I have to paint one good picture. And you know, here's the seed of her fascination with art and her great love of art. Um, in Oxford, she had communist sympathies. She joined the communist party and she was very idealistic as many young communists were um, at that time. She says in another letter to Anne Leach, um, my religion, if I have one at the moment, is a passionate belief in the beautiful and a faith in the ultimate triumph of the people, the workers of the world. And in a longing for the civilization in which every worker shall possess and love beauty lies the mainspring of all my political ideals. Of course, she left um, the Communist Party within a couple of years because she joined, she was conscripted into, um, into working for the Treasury at the beginning of the war. And so she had to give up her uh, membership of the Communist Party. But she remained interested in communist ideology for, for many, you know, many, many years. She lived in London in a flat near the Treasury. But in 1944, wanting to do something more positive in the war, she joined UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. And she worked in London for a year. After that, she was posted to Brussels. And here, I think, you know, she was so excited to be in Brussels because it was European. She was already fed up with the British um, inward lookingness, British analytical philosophy, logical positivism, and she found something very, very different, different in Europe. And she, was, um, she wrote to her friend Marjorie Bolton in 1945, the mixture here is perfect, philosophy, 
existentialism, the new philosophy of France, which is catching the Belgian intellectuals as well, novels, Sartre, Cunot, Simon de Beauvoir, poetry, André Breton, Baharin, Valerie, chaps and girls, writers, philosophers, miscellaneous intellectuals, cafes for talking in for hours and hours on end, open indefinitely. I get a frisson of joy to think that I am of this age, this Europe, saved or damned with it. So she identified very strongly with Europe and was so um, stimulated by what was going on there. And of course, one of the highlights of this time was she met Sartre, who came to Brussels to talk, to give a talk. And she writes excitedly to an old Oxford friend called Hal Liverdale in November 1945. Since seeing you, I have met Jean-Paul Sartre, exclamation mark. <laughs> he came here to give a lecture on existentialism and I was introduced to him at a select gathering after the lecture and saw him again at a long cafe seance the following day. He is small, simple in manner, squints alarmingly and talks exquisitely. At present, I am busily reading everything of his I can lay my hands on. This excitement, I remember nothing like it since the days of discovering Keats and Shelley and Coleridge when I was very young. And you can feel her excitement in that letter. And what I admire about her is this openness to new ideas and this ability which she maintained all her life to engage with different streams of thought and to take what she wanted for them. And she was reading, of course, and I'm sure Kieran will say more about this, at this early stage of her life, in her 20s, she was reading Kierkegaard, Marcel, Wittgenstein, Heidegger and Kant. Um, then, to top it all, she met Raymond Cuno, uh, a polymath, very famous in France, um, a very distinguished man who worked for Gallimard Press and who was a, a novelist in his own right and was very interested in developing the French novel. And she says about that meeting, um, I can find it. Yeah, she says, she writes to him in French. She writes, starts writing in French and after a while she switches to English. But she says she wants to translate Pierre and Mon Ami, one of his novels, mm. into English because she thinks it's experimental and exciting. And she is ambitious. She herself, although she hasn't managed to publish a novel yet, wants to change the direction of the English novel. So she says to Cano in this letter, I know you have invented a new language in French for quite specific purposes. And I wonder if I will be capable of doing the same thing in English. Anyway, I shall try. And I beg you to judge the results rigorously and to tell me immediately if it doesn't please you. The most important thing is to present Piero Monami and the others to English readers with, if it's possible, the same strength and hardness and radiance that they have in French. If I'm not mistaken, this is important for the English novel, which is also in a state of crisis, but less obviously so, and with less intellectual din than the French novel. So you can see there that her ambitions are high. She thinks the English novel has reached a stalemate and she wants to change it and Cano becomes her inspiration. And actually she does later on fall in love with him. When she publishes Under the Net, her first novel in 94, it is dedicated to Cano. And that correspondence goes on for many years. And in fact, she used to cross the channel to meet him in Paris um, once every two years or so, sometimes once a year. I think that gives us a wonderful overview, actually, of the, of the first 20, 30 years of her life, Apple. Thank you. And there's so much going on in there. And, and of course, we'll, we'll come on to uh, thinking about the fiction later. Yeah. You've mentioned, you know, some major figures in um, the Western philosophical tradition. And, and of course, also touched on that she, she studied uh, modern greats at Oxford and, and would have covered 
you know the, the Greeks as well so you know so and of course um, communist ideology Marx so much going on Kieran um, it, it's a tough ask I think but how would you sort of sum up or, or, or work through her earliest sort of um, philosophical development well she was she went back after the war to Newnham College, Cambridge, as a postgrad, and then mm. was a fellow at St. Anne's College, Oxford, 15 years. So she had a kind of standard academic, British academic career, tutorials, teaching, uh, working and publishing. She was publishing in the Proceedings of the Aristotelian Society. So she was, before her novelistic career took off, really a kind of um, central part of the British philosophical academic scene. And that scene was, was dominated by Wittgenstein was a, a big part of it, who she was around but never really formally interacted with. And also uh, emotivism, prescriptivism, kind of ideas about ethics as a kind of expression of emotion or a prescription about how we should live. And those were things that she reacted against. So some of the philosophers that Avril mentioned who were her friends, Elizabeth Anscombe was one, Philippa Foote, Mary Midgley, also reacted against that. They were all keen to defend the idea that ethics could be in some way objective. Mm -hmm. And Murdoch is often associated with, even conflated with those other figures. And one way to, to get into her philosophical thought and what's so exciting and original about it is actually to think about the contrast between her views and theirs. So they, Foote and Midgley Anscombe, these were Aristotelian philosophers. So they thought in some way or other, the way to make ethics objective was to find a foundation for it in human nature or human life. And that really wasn't Murdoch's approach. She was much more of a Platonist. She had the idea that there, were, there was a kind of standard of ethics or goodness that was outside of human nature, but to which we were sort of drawn or directed. What all of those philosophers were against was what you could call the fact value distinction. And this is an idea that was really common to a lot of different philosophical traditions. So Murdoch found it in existentialism, but she also found it in Kant. She also found it in the emotivist prescriptivists of Oxford philosophy where she was teaching. It's the idea that there, on the one hand, there's the kind of factual description of the world, the kind of thing science might, might give you, which is entirely neutral, doesn't tell you what to do. It leaves you free to choose how to live your life. And then value is somehow superimposed on that neutral, factual reality. And Murdoch's biggest innovation, her biggest intervention into philosophy really was to attack the fact-value distinction and to attack it by suggesting that it's not just that value is objective, but actually the very idea of a distinction is misguided. You can't really draw the distinction the way it was being drawn, presupposed by a lot of other philosophers. For Murdoch, description is never neutral. So when you're trying to describe the circumstance that you have to react to and trying to figure out how to feel about it or what to do, the task of description is already a kind of ethical, moral task. And if you can get that right, the decisions about what to do and how to feel will sort of take care of themselves. She says, the, the, this is a quote from um, The Sovereignty of Good, which is really her most important collection of, of philosophical essays, I think. She says, uh, this calls for unsentimental, detached, unselfish, objective attention, a kind of intellectual ability to perceive what is true, which is automatically at the same time a suppression of self. And she goes on to say, uh, if I attend properly, I will have no choices, 
And this is the ultimate condition to be aimed at. So what she's imagining is something like this, that if you think about like how you spent your day yesterday and the kinds of descriptions of the world you gave, and you ask yourself, how many of them were sort of neutral scientific descriptions? The answer will be very few. When you're chatting to friends by the water cooler, as we used to do before uh, COVID-19, or chatting to someone via Zoom, the descriptions will be things like, he was so obnoxious, I can't believe he said that. He really didn't have any right to treat you that way. You should totally tell him that that was not acceptable. Um, you'd be fully justified in that. And frankly, uh, it, it's outrageous that he would, he would speak to you like that. That's not a description that science would somehow confirm or verify. And it's a distinction that just runs roughshod over this fact value contrast. In a way, it's an attempt to just describe what happened. At least a big part of that is just an attempt to describe what happened in your life, state the facts, except the facts are not neutral about what to do. They sort of direct you both about how to feel like outraged or angry and what to do about it, to intervene or uh, how to act. So that I think is sort of the biggest idea in Murdoch's sort of philosophical attack on the fact value distinction. There are two other big ideas that I'll just mention and then maybe we can come back to them more, but they're worth having on the table. One is that there's a kind of Freudian influence on her thought. So she thinks we're naturally selfish, that we have to fight what she calls the fat, relentless ego. So the big obstacle to seeing the world as it is, is our own selfishness. So the idea is there are facts out there, we can see them, but it's extremely difficult to do that. And then the other idea that's incredibly important for her is that the psychic energy that fuels our capacity to see the world as it is, and thereby respond to it the way we should, is love. And she's picking up there on Plato, but also on the work of the French thinker, Simone Weil. And the, the kind of parallel between Murdoch and Weil is very close. So in, in another essay, Murdoch says, love is the extremely difficult realization that something other than oneself is real. And Simone Weil says something very similar in Gravity and Grace, that among human beings, only the existence of those we love is fully recognized. So the thought is, if we could really just see the world as it is, that would tell us how to live and direct us to live rightly. And that's a very, in the, both in the context in which Murdoch was writing, and I think still now, a very unorthodox, sort of exhilarating, but in some ways hard to believe idea about the foundations of ethics, that sheer objectivity, just seeing the world as it is, once you detach objectivity from the kind of narrow interpretation of just scientific knowledge. Sheer objectivity will be a kind of ethical education. That idea, I think, is one that still challenges a lot of orthodoxies in contemporary philosophy and is one that philosophy hasn't really fully absorbed or grappled with even in the, what, now 50 years since Murdoch wrote The Sovereignty of Good. Yes, I agree with you. And of course, she was going very much against the grain in their own time as well, against um, A.J. Eyre, against Stuart Hampshire, um, Gilbert Ryle, people that were producing these major works, um, concept of mind, um, work, works of that nature that were, and she was the complete antithesis to this. And I th it's really good also that you've made that point about the, the difference between the, um, the, group, the, the, uh, the group of four um, and how the three of them were primarily in the Aristotelian era and she was very much on, on the outside as a place. I think that's a great, a great way of distinguishing between them. And of course, this question of attention that you're talking about is, is, 
probably the, 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 the single thread, I think, that's most important that connects her philosophy to the fiction. And, um, and it's right there in the early fiction. Um, Cheryl, do you, um, do you want to uh, talk a little bit about um, the early fictional work and how some of these, um, how there's some spillage really between these areas in her life and her intellectual ideas? Yes, thank you. Uh, well, it's been said that reading an Iris Murdoch novel is like taking a personal tour of one or more London districts. And that's what I did because as an American, I didn't make it to London until the 80s. And I had been studying there for 20 years. So, and when I arrived in London, because of her descriptions, I felt I wasn't a stranger in the city. And I think that most people who aren't British and have never been to London will feel the same way after reading her novels. So I wanted to start with uh, and spend a little more time on Under the Net, which is the perfect introductory novel it never fails to engage students. Uh, the title is from Wittgenstein's Tragicus about the net of discourse, language, and theory, which conceals the words, world's particulars. And this is something that she was concerned about her entire life. And even up to 1987, when she accepted uh, New York City's uh, National Arts Council's Medal of Honor, her after dinner remarks were about, were actually kind of anti-Derrida because she didn't feel that he made exception for all of the human differences that we have. And so most of her novels spend quite a bit of time talking about particulars and things that can't be put into theories, which is also why she didn't want to be known as a Gothic novelist, even though she used that form quite readily. Okay, so Under the Net has two questers, Anna Quentin, whom Jake Donahue thinks he loves, and Hugo Balfounder, Jake's former friend, whom he had once had a philosophical discussion with. Anna's ideas about art and science are interesting. She stops singing and joins a mime theater, and they parallel Hugo's ideas in the silencer, uh, the dialectic uh, between the, on the talks between Jake and Hugo, which Jake publishes without Hugo's knowledge and feels guilty about. Uh, Hugo is a Wittgenstein figure uh, who views language as a limitation for truth, and he is also an exemplar of the good. So in her first novel, she is talking about how to be good uh, and that topic continues through all of her novels. Uh, Jake is a picaresque hero, and this is an, as an existential novel uh, to the extent that she said she was copying Pinot as hard as she could, uh, but she doesn't really repeat these forms again. They, um, Jake is a failed artist, like most of her protagonists. He's been translating uh, Jean-Pierre Vutrel's uh, works from the French, and he doesn't really do original work. And by the end of the novel, he will change. Jake searches for both Anna and Hugo throughout the novel, not particularly cognizant that he is searching for love and meaning in his life. In the end, he loses both loves 
but he does gain a degree of awareness that he has loved poorly. It's, you can find nearly anything that interests you in a Murdoch novel. Much, most of us have long since discovered. My architecture students were particularly interested in the use of spatial imagery, and that still excites me today. And I think that's what makes Under the Net so relevant. It appears in all of her novels, and that's not often discussed. She uses spatial imagery to make connections between character and, and environment that more than a half century later parallel contemporary theorists' understanding of the emotional engagement between the individual and environment. In this way, Murdoch's novels build upon the learned and imagined London and the British culture uh, that we have expectations of. She captures public monument and memory in her presentation of the grand churches in this novel. Jake and his friends are looking for Hugo, and this is right after the war in 1954, and we have a lot of ruined buildings and new infill. And so they start at the top of Holborn Viaduct. And Holborn Viaduct, Victorian, colorful, iron, statues, Victorian globe lights, uh, winged lions, and they look over the edge and it, and it also cross, it was built so that it would cover the valley of the Fleet River. So they look down below to Farrington Street, which takes its place, the fleet's place, and there it is, looking at them like a dried river. And so she starts with a, a view of, of the city churches of London, of, of Rand's churches from a high point and can and she can see them all together and then they go down into their pub crawl in which they didn't find Hugo who lives at the top of Holborn Violet Dock in one of these infill buildings. So they don't find him so they go down to the pub crawl to find him in one of the pubs. And so now they're down in the city in these very small narrow dark spaces and after another night of not being able to do what they want uh, and having drunk too much, they come out into a clear space and they, uh, Murdoch uses the image that it's like a bright arena that mm. they come into. And when they, when they get there, then they look through the ruins to St. Nicholas Cole Abbey, which is framed by the ruins. So what Murdoch has done is taken us from high to low, dark, maze-like, to the open, bright again, and then back to the narrow. So she is moving us through the space. She's using images that are spatial. She's progressing us through time. And all of that is, is very architectural. They, um, we go from on stage to secluded watching others. So um, much of that happens in almost all of our novels. And, and under the net, we have set piece after set piece that does such things. They, um, the other thing I want to say about under the net is that she actually 
anticipates the Millennium Bridge project because when Jake goes down to the river and swims out, holds on to a barge and looks up and down the river and sees Blackfriar Bridge and the Suffolk Bridge, he is at the exact place of the Millennium Bridge. And we are thinking about what used to be from millennium forward, from ancient times, the, um, from the Middle Ages even, the uh, barges of the royal barges would go up and down river and they would approach St. Paul's. Well, with the Millennium Bridge project, the St. Paul's infill, all of that that had obscured St. Paul's from the bank has, is removed and there's now a gateway to St. Paul's. And when the queen had a, recently had a jubilee celebration, her barge went up and down the river and from Greenwich and by, by St. Paul's. So Murdoch did all of this in 1954. <laughs> and so we have come back to it. So uh, the uh, other thing that, that shows up in this novel, that shows up in most of her novels, is when her characters need to make a decision, they find a gallery. And Jake goes to the Wallace Collection, which was Murdoch's favorite small gallery. And he sits in front of uh, Franz Howell's Laughing Cavalier and looks at the smirking smile of the Cavalier and tells him his story. Well, March has thrown him out, his mistress has thrown him out and stolen his manuscript and given it to another man who has gotten with a Hollywood kingmaker and they're going to make a movie out of it and what does Jake need to do about this? And he decides, I'm gonna steal it back. And, and so then we get the next picaresque adventure when he tries to steal the key to Sammy's flat and then eventually the dog to hold for ransom. So we go on and on uh, through these different adventures and they're all very spatial. Um, they, um, I think the last thing that I wanna say, uh, uh, I mean, there's so many things we could stay on under the net forever, but uh, the last thing I wanna say about that is uh, Jake's view of Paris as beautiful, cruel, tender, disquieting, and an enchanting city. Now you couldn't say that about London. I mean, you would not recognize London in that description, but you would certainly, and of course, you know, during the set piece in, on Bastille Day in London, we, she describes, she contrasts uh, London and Paris gardens and rivers and, and so forth. But in the later novel, which is still in the early period, more, uh, says that Lon he sees London as a beautiful and slightly sinister city of possibility and promises. So you have that. Yes, that's more more in the in the Sandcastle, her uh, her third novel. So that that's 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 great because you're picking up on so many sort of elements that in in some regards might be disparate in another novelist's um, uh, train of thought and way of thinking and way of, way of, way of writing. But actually, they, they all work so well within with Under the Net, the, the travel, the galleries, um, the questions with architecture and space, and obviously London being such a, a, such a central, central location for so many of her novels. But also, you mentioned the relationships, and, um, and so much of these, these elements also figure in, the, in her life 
and in her in her letters as well. And and, and Avril, I, I know that when you're putting together um, the letters collection, um, it was a you know a mammoth task to try and choose you know which ones to leave, leave in and which, which um, to keep in, which ones to leave out. And during her life into the 50s and into the 60s, of course, her, her, her life changes, but she continues to have a variety of relationships. And these also are reflected in her fiction as well, aren't they? Yes. I mean, uh, I think it's interesting. She said much later in life, um, in a letter to Michael Hamburger, the poet and translator, she said, um, Canetti, who was a, a Bulgarian thinker intellectual that she had an affair with and was enthralled to for many, well, some years. She says, Canetti is not anywhere in my novels, by the way. I would not want to copy people. I invent them. And you think, hmm, you know. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, every, you know, it's, it's, obviously it's naive to say that Canetti is the basis for Misha Fox in The Flight from the Enchanter and Julia's King in The Fairly Honourable Defeat. But you you can't help thinking, you know, as Kieran was saying, if her search is for what does it mean to be good, in her fiction she's also exploring what it means to be evil. And characters like Misha Fox and Julius King, who do bear a relationship to um, Elias Canetti in many ways, they, you know, they, there are elements of his character that clearly inspired her when she created these figures, they are the opposite of selfless love. They are men who manipulate and who use people. And she admitted herself that she was enthralled to Canetti. And she wrote him the most, she, she did write letters in quite extravagant language sometimes. So it's, it's occasionally difficult to know what the, le what the level of real feeling is, but she would say things in her letters to Canetti like, you know, um, my great lion, my mask of Agamemnon, and you think, wow, you know, that's not, not, purple. <laughs> that's not the usual Valentine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so through these figures, she does explore, I think, what it means to be evil. So you find a balance in the novels, you know, the pursuit of, of goodness or, and selflessness um, is played out against these figures, uh, like Misha Fox. And I think she wasn't a Gothic novelist, but she used the Gothic mode occasionally to inflect the darkness of um, manipulation and, and um, uh, cruelty, as she does, of course, in The Unicorn. And one of the things that comes out so strong in her letters is obsession, mm -hmm. because she herself became obsessed by various lovers. She had many, many relationships, too many to document here, but she became obsessed by various lovers. Uh, Michael Oakeshock, the philosopher, um, uh, Bridget Brophy, the novelist, um, Elias Canetti, of course, um, and she, she couldn't seem to stop writing. I mean, the reason we were so excited when we managed to buy the letters to Bridget Brophy was that there were hundreds and hundreds of them. And to Canoe, of course, when she fell in love with Canoe after this sort of intellectual correspondence, she wrote ceaselessly, and he was married with a child and, and actually began to found, find the relationship quite, quite difficult to handle. So you, when you look at the Sea the Sea and Charles Araby, you think this is an extraordinary, extraordinarily riveting portrait of obsessive love, which is the opposite of selflessness. But I think she understood what it was like to be obsessive, partly because she herself was obsessive in some ways, became obsessive about various people. But they all taught her something. She learned from them all. Um, obviously, she learned from writers like Simone Weil, the theory of selflessness. Um, but she learned something from everyone in her life, from Bridget Brophy. It was Bridget Brophy who persuaded her to go back to Freud, whom um, Murdoch had dismissed you know, as, as not being of relevance to her thinking. 
uh, it was Bridget Brophy who introduced us to Mozart. And in the novel she writes after, during that time, the Mozartian dance of couples in the novels seems to become more pronounced, you know. So she absorbs an awful lot. Um, in terms of the selflessness, where do you get selflessness in the novels? She says in a letter to uh, an Indian academic, Sugana Ramanathan, in 1983, so quite late on in her life. I think selfless love is very rare, though the idea of it is an inspiration. Love runs through the self. Calm, objective, humble people, such as teachers and helpers, often seem to come near a selfless loving. It is harder for mothers, etc. But it's an attractive idea. Christ is one such idea. One would start there. Now, she fell out of love with God, but she maintained the figure of Christ as a possible figure of goodness and selflessness. And for the same reason, she turned to, to Buddha as well, because mm. she saw in Buddhism, um, as she explores in the character of James Araby in the Sea to Sea, an attempt to achieve through meditation some sort of selflessness. And I think in the late novels, I'll stop in a minute, but I think in the late novels, which I think are extraordinary, um, when you get um, the book and the Brotherhood and the message to the planet, there is very clearly an attempt there to steer the reader away from demagogues like David Crimmond, who thinks he has the answer to the world in his Marxist philosophy, and from the less um, sinister Marcus Valor, who is a failed mathematician philosopher, who becomes a guru, despite himself becomes a guru. And I think this is extraordinarily pertinent to our times now, where we live with demagogues dotted around the globe who have extraordinary power. And the message of the Book of the Brotherhood seems to be that actually it's small acts of kindness that constitute love in everyday life. And the message of the message to the planet, I mean, the book says there is no message and there is no answer in the big sense, but there is one message and it's that we should confront the dark spaces of history and ourselves in order to begin to understand what goodness can be. Mm. No, it, it, it's, that, that's a really good um, connection, I think, to considering this idea about um, literature and mystification um, and also philosophy and thinking about um, specification and, and the purity of philosophy and the way that she, in, during her career, is able to hold these two things together and is able to write philosophy um, in the morning and then write some fiction and then go on and write the letters. I mean, she's writing constantly, isn't she? Hours and hours every day. Yes. Yes. It's incredible. I think we ought, also ought to mention, of course, that um, her meeting and then marrying John does, John Bailey does provide her with such a strong anchor, not yeah. just for, I mean, he, he gives her obviously quite a lot of latitude to go out and um, discover the world and indeed to continue having a variety of relationships, but also provides that kind of, um, that, that, spa that safe space of home to, to write the fiction, doesn't he? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And it was, Bridget Brophy became very impatient with Murdoch's, uh, refusal to spend more time with her and less time with John Bailey and, and Murdoch said she would never endanger her, she never wished to endanger her marriage in that way. Yes, yes indeed. So, so Kieran, thinking about this I, I, um, concern with Murdoch's for, for philosophy to clarify, um, you, you, you mentioned I think very rightly that um, Sovereignty of Good Collection is the, the most important. Of course there are a variety of essays, that there's that um, rather short book and but very good I think, quite underrated book on Sartre and then she goes right, right the way through and um, the Obviously, her major uh, late work, Metaphysics, A Guide to Morals, is the unpublished work on Heidegger. We don't need to go into a lot of detail about that. But do you, do you feel that there's a, a, 
a, a process of clarification that she's constantly going through in her philosophical writing. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a kind of an amazing continuity, really, even from her very earliest essays in philosophy through to Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals and the Heidegger Manuscript. So she's doing many different things in many different ways, but I, I think this obsession with how to attend to reality and capture it in language and the ethical significance of that connects really everything she did in philosophy. And I, there's a lot to pick up on there in, in things that Cheryl and Avril have said. I mean, I think Avril is right. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm very sympathetic to the thought that Murdoch's grappling with the fat, relentless ego is a kind of personal challenge. Like she has a, a kind of awareness of the difficulty there and a way of conveying it that suggests that her own life is coming into her philosophy. And I think the other thing that, that connects these themes is, or these parts of her life, is the attention to reality. So that this idea of trying to describe things correctly, I focused earlier on, as Murdoch often does on examples involving describing people and how to treat people, but she thinks of description in general as a kind of moral task. So it wouldn't just be how to describe people, but how to describe art or how to describe nature or how to describe a city or the, the kind of description of the architecture of London and Paris that Cheryl was giving. All of that for Murdoch is a kind of moral endeavor. Um, and it's all supposed to address this fundamental practical question of how we can make ourselves better. And I think as soon as you start thinking that, the, that how we describe the world, the language we use, plays a profound role in determining how we respond, that, a task of making ourselves better and the task of description become entangled and both dangerous and uh, and sort of hopeful. The danger is the kind of thing that Avril was pointing to that insofar as language determines how we react to the world, demagogues and others who misuse language and misdescribe the world can change how we see it and the world we live in and how we're able to act within it. But there's also a kind of profound hope for what philosophy can do that you find even going back to, as I said, Murdoch's early essays. So there's a quote from Vis Vision and Choice in Morality, which is one of her first mm, great yeah. philosophy essays. She says, quote, great philosophers coin new moral concepts and communicate new moral visions and modes of understanding. From here, we may see that the task of moral philosophers has been to extend, as poets may extend, the limits of language and enable it to illuminate regions which were formerly dark. And I think there's something really wonderful about this thought that if describing the world affects how we live, then the descriptions that philosophers themselves give, in fact, the descriptions of human reality that Murdoch herself is giving, aren't just neutral descriptions. They themselves have the potential to change how we see reality and so to change us. And I mean, one way to, to, to sort of tie this all together is to say, I think, for someone coming to Murdoch from the novels, her philosophy is difficult. I mean, she writes very well uh, and interestingly as a philosopher, but the philosophy is not easy. It's both because of its range of reference. She's referring to her con contemporary philosophers that she knows and uh, we may not, but also uh, it's, it's dense and it's elusive and it's not very linear. And I think one way to try and approach Murdoch is with this idea that the point ultimately is to make us better by giving us language that transforms how we see the world and uh, she actually wrote in a, a letter to Raymond Cano, it might actually be in the collection Avril edited, I'm not sure, but I, um, I can't remember where I found this, but she says in, in parenthesis to Raymond Cano, now and then I think, let it go to hell anyway, why not read philosophy just for the emotional kick? 
and she's obviously not concluding that that's ultimately all there is to philosophy. But I sometimes give that advice to people coming from the novels and reading Murdoch's philosophy for the first time and say, don't worry about getting all the details right. Let your, let your mind skim through it and read it for the emotional kick. And you're not reading it anti-philosophically when you do that. It is supposed to sort of uh, reorient and sort of reboot your way of seeing the world. And in that sense, there is a kind of continuity between her life and her novels and her philosophy, I think. Yes, I think that, that, that's the project, I think, isn't it? That's her, that's her project to, um, to change our perception, through reading her philosophy, to change our perception of, 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 how, we see, of how we see the world and consider goodness and, and indeed so much else. And, and Cheryl, when we're thinking about these, these concerns of goodness and um, those, those other issues that, uh, that uh, Kieran was thinking about, we can see that they, they're connected right the way through into what we might consider her major period of, of, um, of writing fiction as well, from the late 60s um, through into the 70s, of course, including such great works as The Black Prince, See the Sea, Fairly Honourable Defeat, and so on. Yes, I, and I think uh, one of her very uh, underrated novels, uh, The Sandcastle, uh, present, presents a, a good character, and she has uh, Bledyard, who is an art master and a Platonist, and he brings out some of the things that he's that she says in her philosophy. Uh, for example, his his painting uh, paintings are landscapes, and he doesn't believe in representational art. And he he actually does judge people in the novel when one of his friends, uh, a, a history master Moore, has. A relationship with uh, a young sprite uh, who's an excellent painter, Rain Carter, uh, who who comes to uh, do a portrait of a, a retired headmaster, Du Moite. Uh, Moore has an affair with her, or at least he has an entanglement with her, and wants to leave his family for them. And Bledyard, Bledyard says to him, "You." will ruin her painting. You know, she won't be a good person. She can't paint well. And in fact, she's unable to finish the painting until after they break off their affair. And then she reworks the painting. And uh, what it's interesting what Rain is asked, what she thinks about Bledyard's paintings. And she said, they're good, except he's obstructed slightly because of his theories. And so, I mean, that, that's rather interesting that she puts all of that in. In a few places, Murdoch has pointed out how difficult it is for her to present this good figure, the good character, because they aren't strong-willed. They don't mm -hmm. attract people to them. They're not manipulators. Mm -hmm. They're kind of vacuous. And, and so they appear to be flat and uninteresting. Uh, but the the people, the types of people that she sees as good, are combinations of of religious types, Buddhist, Christian, uh, Jewish, Quaker, and and she had a, a great interest in that. One of uh, one of the interviews I did was uh, one of her friends was an Ottoman. Uh, expert in Oxford uh, and had a, a, a bookshop and he and his wife lived in the chaplain's house at an Anglican convent in Oxford 
and Murdoch asked him to bring in all of the religious figures, several religious figures that she knew had unusual beliefs. Uh, I think one of the Oxford College chaplains didn't believe in the virgin birth. And she wanted him to invite them to lunch, which he did, so that she could pick their brains. And you see, through many of her more uh, later novels, Carol Fisher, mm -hmm. uh, a, a lot of people who are struggling with belief. And, and then, of course, her question is, how do you live in a world which no longer believes in God? And, and I think you know, that probably is, is one of the problems for present day young people. Yes, no, I, I, I think that she's so um, ahead of her time in, in, in so many regards. And I think what you're just say, saying is it throws up two questions. I mean, how, how far the, the philosophy impinges on the novel and whether she is a philosophical novelist. I mean, that, that, that's a sort of a perennial question that comes up so much. And also this question about um, her neo-theology uh, demythologized Christianity and doing away with with certain figures and Kieran I wonder if you could um, say a little bit about maybe one or other of, of those two uh, those two points. Sure yeah I mean I I think actually if you were going to read one thing by Murdoch even before the sovereignty of God the most fun thing to read although actually is the I was going to say the interview transcripts of her interview about philosophy and literature with Brian McGee but you don't need to read it because I think you can listen to it in this podcast. You can indeed. And also, uh, and also see it, um, you can see it on YouTube. But mm. that conversation is, the, is one which uh, I especially love, in which she's extremely resistant to the idea of a philosophical novel and that her novels are philosophical. She says, you know, I put philosophy in my novels because I happen to know about philosophy. If I knew about sailing, I'd put in sailing ships. And she has said, I think, in her career, uh, said in her career, an array of conflicting things about the relationship between her novels and philosophy. The one thought to have about it is I suppose that her philosophy is supposed to be a, a kind of true philosophy. She's trying to describe ethical reality and the good and our relation to it accurately. And so if she's right, it shouldn't just be her novels as it were that are illuminated by this. Her novels, yes, but in a way, I think her account, if it's right, ought to help illuminate novels in general, or certainly at least the realist novel, because the, the kind of idea that attention and att to words and description of language is an ethical phenomenon, um, yes, may be true of her novels, and it may be that they thematize it in a, in a way that a philosopher can do. But I think if there's a connection between her philosophy and fiction, it's more general than philosophy and her fiction. It's really between her philosophy and projects in fiction, more generally, of which she's a kind of part. Mm. Yes, no, I think that's um, an interesting, an interesting way to say. It. I mean, she's not a philosophical novelist in the classical sense, is she? She's not trying to impart a one particular philosophical worldview within a within a novel. That's just not how she operates. But there are obviously the, the philosophy does come in in certain ways. In more particularly, we've mentioned under the net. Um, earlier, I mean that that most definitely is, I think, a, a philosophical novel. But obviously, some of the later ones, um, she's she's much more subtle with what she's trying to do. Um, Avril, I'd, I'd like to come to you to talk a little bit about the sort of the, the middle period novels, um, because she becomes, I think, you know, it's quite often said that her first five, maybe six novels are all um, experiments in certain genres and, and using certain themes. And by the seventies, she's kind of settled into a rhythm and an, into a pattern of how she wants to what she wants to do with fiction. And that, for most people, is where her greatest, no greatest novels lie. I wonder if that's something that um, you would agree with and whether you'd point 
um, somebody that's coming fresh to the novels to, to one of those? Um, I certainly think they're very powerful works. I mean, and they're held together often by obsession. I mean, you look at both The Sea, The Sea of the Black Prince. Um, you can argue that, you know, they, The Sea, The Sea covers things like Buddhism, um, obsession, evil, manipulation, all the, um, and raises questions of morality. Um, and The Black Prince, of course, is still a contentious novel because it's the desire of an older man for a much younger woman and its obsessive desire. Um, it is the obsession that keeps the plot going, if you like. Um, so I think she'd learnt enough about obsession from her own life and from observing other people to be an expert in it. And so obsession gives the plot its gives the plot of both those novels a terrific dynamism while at the same time she's exploring what we might call more abstract ideas um, mm. about morality so i think in that sense yes her in many ways her most powerful works i still find the sea to see a harrowing read but it's also quite it has moments of humor one of the things we haven't discussed is the humor in word yes, she's, she's very very funny yeah Absolutely. and i you know as we're talking as this is called Murder for Beginners, we've talked very seriously, you know, about her philosophy and her ethics. And, but new readers need to know that she can also make you laugh, I think. And, um, she and it's had, accessible as well, that you don't have to have a background right. in any, of, the, any exactly. of these things. Exactly. You, really you don't have to enjoy. Exactly. Because the plot dynamic by the 70s is so strong in these novels. And I'd just like to quote from, um, a a in terms of her humour, uh, she and Bridget Brophy had an enormous amount of fun. I mean, she had a lot of fun in the 60s and 70s. And they used to, um, it, you know, she, we haven't talked about gender fluidity, but with Brophy, they experimented sexually. And she, in The Bell, of course, um, she says, uh, the narrator says, the, the sophistication of holding that we all participate in both sexes is an advantage, you know, mm. uh, and that's a very, very modern idea. She didn't have the words uh, gender fluidity, but we have them now. So yet again, she is anticipating things so that, you know. Well, it, it's a novel so far ahead of its time, isn't it? Exactly. Um, but the humour is there in the in the Brophy relationship. They are they dress up, they play about, but they also intellectually stimulate each other. And the correspondence with Brophy is hilarious, as well as at times very poignant and painful. And in the letter written in, in 74, we're talking about the novels of the 70s, they've been discussing language in relation to Wittgenstein. And then suddenly Murdoch in a letter goes um, off on, on a bend about Frank. She says the word Frank seems to be one of those words that set people off. And then there's a PS at the end of the letter, reflecting on the evident impact of Frank. I think I told you once, or did you tell me, that market research had shown that the most commercially attractive words in novel titles were doctor and naked. Recently, I saw that similar research had turned up Tangier as a good word. Title, therefore, of my next novel, Tangier Frank, the Naked Doctor. Sadly, <laughs> she never wrote it. <laughs> I'd just like to say for readers who've only read one Murdoch novel, there is a lot of fun in them as well as pain as well. Yeah, yeah. She, she covers the whole range of human emotion and human experience. I think that's what yes. makes her such yes. a yes. wonderful writer. And, and she's not just a realist either. She does play around with form. Yes. Yes. Great deal, doesn't yes. she? Yes, I mean, those last novels, you know, The Book of the Brotherhood and The Message of the Planet, I'm sure an editor these days would take a red pen. They are baggy monsters of novels. But as I said earlier, they have an awful lot to teach us today about demagoguery and, um, as Kieran said, the power of language to manipulate um, in the worst sense of the word. Yes. 
and and it's it's quite true that and you know from from the sort of late seventies early eighties onwards they do become longer, and yes. yet her obsessions and her beliefs um, remain the same, and yet she wants a much broader canvas, doesn't she, to work yes. with? Yes, she does. And you find that with 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 both with literary artists, but also with um, yeah. you know um, with painters. Yes. Um, a number of them are, are, work in, in some regards in the yeah. same way, and and Cheryl, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to come back to you and, and think about um, her as a as a literary artist and where, and um, your thoughts on where where she goes with 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 the development of her fiction. Well, I think you know, as the others have said, uh, she was experimenting uh, when she first began and. Uh, with Under the Net, uh, she doesn't really repeat that picaresque form again. And although it's it's very effective in that novel, and then when once she has five novels that are in are gothic motifs and covers it quite quite nice nicely, uh, but she as I said, she resented being called a gothic novelist because mm. she felt it. It, it was derogatorily limiting to her. I love the way she put that. Uh, but, but it was a form that worked for her. And I, I think you could, in her later novel, she is, re, she is a realist. The first Murdoch novel I ever read was under the, uh, was The Bell. And when I started reading criticism about it, they had her as an angry young man, uh, an existentialist. Uh, they, they had, the critics had no idea what to do with her. Uh, but she has a lot of fantasy in her, in her novels as well. And uh, perhaps I think that she settles into a, a type of realism which covers the way people live because there are a lot of fantasies in people's lives and she brings them in in her characters and her classical background is, is always there to present the, these different motifs mm. which keep reoccurring in her novels such as Peter Pan, uh, which is at, at one time, very early in her career, her Peter Pans uh, were more playful and, and light, mm. people who refuse to grow up. But later on, the effects they have on other people are dark and sinister. And so there is some involvement there. But I mean, there is no scene that has more humor uh, when uh, Austin Gibson Gray's brother Matthew is trying to get away from Gracie Chisborne. Uh, in Kensington Gardens, and he is uh, out of shape and can't run, and uh, starts trotting away, and he collapses by the Peter Pan statue, and Gracie, and he's trying to get away from Gracie because she's trying to tell him her problems, and she effortlessly catches him up, and he has to listen to them anyway, <laughs> and and so uh, th these are very dark characters. Both of them are. Uh, but but it's 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 part of her fiction, and and we all grow into it. Mm, I think I, whenever I'm reading her, I always feel that there's a real strong tension between the, the the British realist novel and the European tradition as well, and the Russian tradition. Mm. And you can feel that some novels owe far more to 
Dickens, um, and, um, and and in some regards George Eliot and um, and, and uh, authors of that and, and Jane Austen, and others owe far more earlier in the career to um, to Cano and Beckett, of course, as we've we've mm. mentioned, but later on to, to Dostoevsky, and to and to the other and other great Russians, as well. So there's she's holding so much in, in tension, isn't she? You know, um, elements of her Irish background as well come in, of course, in the Unicorn, and of and and we haven't even mentioned her historical novel, The Red and the Green, about the the, um, the Easter Rising. Um, in Dublin, but there's, you know, with with 26 novels and 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 so much going on, it's very difficult in a in in one podcast to cover everything. I'd like to talk briefly, I think, about her her view on metaphysics as well, uh, Karen, because I think that's an important one um, for people coming coming fresh to the philosophy to know where she kind of where she saw herself in relation to to that problem. I suppose as you she might see it. Well, I think it's, that's a very kind of hard and complicated question in her because she describes herself as a Wittgensteinian Platonist. So uh, Plato being the great metaphysician of the super sensible forms, Wittgenstein being the, uh, the late Wittgenstein being the kind of down to earth philosopher of kind of almost pragmatism of language games and uh, um, sort of groundedness in the texture of actual life. And it seems like an oxymoron to combine the two, but I think that is her, her, a kind of way of thinking about the role of metaphysics in her philosophy, that in some way her view is that e even in the ordinary use of language, there's the idea, there's sort of metaphysical ideas of perfection and limit and transcendence are implicit and that they're not alien impositions. They're, they're sort of things we're always reacting to and sensitive to anytime we try to describe anything that uh, this comes out in her talking about improvement in our grasp of a concept. So take the concept of love that she says, we don't know that our sense of what love means. And here she really means like our grasp of the concept develops as we grow and experience love of different kinds and in different ways and uh, or regresses as well as grows. But it, that's a, a way in which she's sort of uh, naturalizing almost a kind of metaphysical vision you get in Plato and, and suggesting that it's part of the texture of ordinary life and not something we can really step outside. Um, and that's, I think she's really close to unique. I mean, it's not a, a kind of synthesis that you really find as a kind of standard position on the menu of options. I think that's generally a feature of Murdoch that the views she takes are, uh, unorthodox enough that they don't fit neatly into the way philosophy has subsequently developed. And that's one reason for her relative neglect. I think it's really changing in the last 10 years. Maybe. Yeah, absolutely. But, but I think there was a long period in which I think her philosophical work was not um, taken as seriously as it ought to have been. And I think this connects with one last thing, I suppose, about the evolution of her fiction from fairly short, tightly plotted novels to these, the loose baggy monsters that she was writing towards the end, like The Green Knight and The Book and the Brotherhood and so on. There's a similar thing in her philosophy, which is that her, the last sort of great published work of philosophy, Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, is itself a kind of indigestible, loose baggy monster of philosophy. I mean, it's fascinating, but almost impossible to read cover to cover. I mean, it's just all over the place. And I think that probably didn't help, even though help her reputation in philosophy as a sort of academic philosopher, even though it was very, I think, very well received and actually had a kind of readership outside of the academic mm. discipline. 
Yes, it certainly has. And in, in the last, in, just in the last year or two, I think pe people are now going back to metaphysics. There's, there's um, work being written on it and considering it as, you know, not as a, a standalone work that doesn't really, that sort of collapses under its own weight, but does actually develop on from Sovereignty of Good and the, and the, and the later philosophical essays. And of course, we await um, in, a, in a year or two the publication of, um, of the, her, her book on Heidegger. So, uh, you know, for, for, those of the, for those of you who are listening who are interested in, in that particular area, um, something to look forward to. Well, as we as we draw our conversation to a close, and and um, as, as Cheryl rightly said earlier, I think we could we could talk for for hours about all the all of these issues and, and not get bored at all because she covers so so many uh, so many subjects and so, and uh, so many subjects. Um, I'd like um, each of you in a if you could in a in a minute or two just to um, for for those of you uh, for those listeners who are coming um, to the to the um, to her work brand new to encourage them to read one particular thing be it a philosophical essay or a novel or an interview perhaps, or um, yeah, something that you think would be a really good entry point in, into, uh, into murder. Avril, let's start with you. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, maybe we should just say, maybe just by the collected letters, it's amazing. I think actually, actually you do get a really strong sense of her, um, her life, her career, her fiction, her philosophy, you get, you get all of that in the letters actually, don't you? I think that yes, would be fair to do. say. Um, I think what the letters give you, I mean, a biography is always shaped by the perspective of the biographer. You know, things are left out and other things are made much of. Mm. With the letters, we try to sort of include as much as we could. What you get is sort of kaleidoscopic view of Murdoch because she's in all these relationships and writing about so many different things. And uh, it, it enriched my my understanding of Murdoch, not only of her work, but of her as a woman. And one of the extraordinary things about the letters is you realize how many friends she had and how many years she kept them with her and how much she loved them. And although, you know, she admitted to acts of jealousy, she also was an extremely kind woman to her friends and to a lot of people who were, you know, David Morgan, one of her art students at the RCA when she was teaching there, who would make most, she would just pull their hair out. She was extraordinarily kind to. Um, so you get this picture of a very, very interesting woman who has refused to conform to orthodox thinking throughout her life. Mm. And, and I think, as I said at the beginning, that's one of the reasons I admire her so much, that she carved her own path um, in her fiction, in her philosophy, and in her own life, you know, the gender fluid way of living, uh, which we now have language for, she was doing then and writing about it both in her fiction and in her letters. Um, personally, I always find The Sea, The Sea the most uh, gripping novel, you know, one that horrifies you and appalls you and makes you laugh all at the same time. And it contains many of the threads of her ideas that we've been talking about. So if you want a novel that grips you and makes you laugh and horrifies you at the same time, I would recommend The Sea, The Sea. Yes, and, and probably the, uh, the the one that's easiest to get hold of is it. Uh, yeah, and it won uh, the book prize. It did win the Booker, yes. Yeah. And of course, that the ongoing discussion of did did she win, win the Booker for the right book? Uh, she's yes. nom nominated yeah. six times um, yeah. through her yeah, career, yeah. but uh, yeah. Yeah. I think we'll have to do a special on the Sea the Sea, and you'll have to come back, and we'll talk, we can talk <laughs> about that more. Uh, Cheryl, what how how about for you? Where where, where do you think people should start? Uh, well, one of my favorite um, mid novels is, is Henry and Cato, uh, probably because of the extensive number of Max Beckman paintings, the German expressionists, um, yes, yeah. are in the novel, and, and how she fits them in with the character who lear learns uh, 
rather sharply what real fear and suffering are. And, and so uh, the novel, although it sounds rather grim, has many comic, although dark comic, uh, moments. And, and I think uh, you really get an idea of, of uh, the ego present and how it shouldn't be. And really all you can do is go forward instead of back. Yes. Uh, and so I like that novel uh, for that reason. And it's, and it's so underrated as well. There are, I, I could think of three or four um, Murdoch novels that I think are, need, need far more, um, far more oxygen and publicity actually of, mm -hmm. of being excellent. That, and Henry and Cato being one of them, an unofficial rose for me as well as one that, yeah. that we, we, we rarely talk about, um, that wonderful Henry, that Jamesian, Henry James um, novel, um, of her fa fa fairly early on in her career as well. But no, Henry and Cato, I'd absolutely agree. I think that, that connects, connects nicely as um, one, of, one of the more overtly um, theological novels um, running right the way back um, to the bell. I think there's, uh, there's interesting developments um, in that. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a very good choice indeed. And of course, um, people should also um, get hold of your understanding, Iris Murdoch, as well, shouldn't they? Because I think that's a really useful book for for um, for people who are for beginners. Fresh. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's basically uh, a book for beginners. Yes. So, so uh, and it and it and it's still in print, and it, it's um it's it's easy to get hold of as well. Kieran, how about you? Where should people start with the philosophy? I, 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 on the novels, I like Under the Net and the Sea to Sea especially, so I, I second those as, as recommendations. On the philosophy, so all, virtually all of her philosophy is in this one collection, Existentialists and Mystics. Mm, um, yeah. So you can get it all and then uh, sort of dip into it however you like. I think for people who are, are working in philosophy, Sovereignty of Good, those three essays are the place to start. Even for people who are not, as I said, I think there's a lot to be said for just uh, diving into it and seeing what you get out of it and not worrying when it seems too hard and just trying to trying to enjoy it. The other two things, there's the McGee interview. The other thing, um, the last thing though, I think uh, is quite fun is these two platonic dialogues she wrote. So um, they were published as a castos, uh, mm. two platonic dialogues. They are, they were performed as stage plays and they feature Plato as an angry young man uh, storming around, uh, arguing with Socrates, and they are literary and philosophical, and they're they're another kind of really exciting, delightful entry point into Iris Murdoch's work for people who are coming at it from the fiction rather than as uh, students of philosophy. Yeah, that's an excellent choice, and one I wouldn't have thought of myself either. It's a, again a, a work that gets very, very little airtime. I think when when people talk about the philosophy usually go from the early essays and Sartre through to Sovereignty of Good, then to Metaphysics. And we don't really, we don't really think about Akastos at all. But uh, yeah, if people can get hold of that, I know it's, uh, um, you can um, get it very easily online. So uh, yeah, well worth picking up, I think. Well, we've covered so much today and um, it's been a really wonderful podcast. I've, I'm, I've uh, so enjoyed having, having your company. So thank you all so much. Um, my thanks to Avil Horner, to uh, Kieran Satir and to, uh, and to Cheryl Bove. It's what a, a great start to the, to the second season of the Iris Murdoch podcast. Um, so my, my, my thanks to them. Um, and uh, next time on the podcast, um, we'll be talking about Iris Murdoch and singing. Um, and joining me on that podcast um, will be 
um, Gillian Dooley, um, um, Senior Research Fellow at, um, from Flinders University, amongst, um, amongst others. We'll have some other guests on as well. Um, but until then, um, my thanks to my guests and my thanks to you all for listening.